Our, uh, our gospel reading this morning is from Luke 12, uh, 22 through 34. Kids, you are dismissed to go with Not Pastor so. Debbie. <laughs> Wait to hear the gospel with her. Let's see here. All right. So here, here then the gospel of our Lord. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, um, these past couple weeks, we have been in uh, kind of Doing, doing a little series following, we had done the letter of James and talked about living wisely. James has kind of all these patient, careful instructions about being slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. Tells us about being patient, waiting for the day of the Lord, bridling our tongues. The question that you might have walking away from that, especially with a letter like James that was written in the first century is, well, but what does that look like in our lives here now today? So we've been kind of working with this idea of living holy, living saintly lives. What are these images of James or the scriptures living wisely, living well, even in our present context? When Pastor Jeff was, so to speak, pitching these few weeks to me, he, uh, he asked me to consider whether um, I might, for this particular Sunday, uh, focus in on one of two unlikely people that had helped to form me, encourage me uh, in faith. And I say unlikely because I never actually met either of these people in person, as I have so many of you. Um, They were both women, not that I have anything against women, but if I were looking for people to impact and form me, I suppose I'd incline towards people more similar, men. Um, They were both Catholic, which I am not, and they both, for a portion of their lives, lived in religious orders. But I hope that you'll see today um, why at least one of these women, Catherine Drexel, uh, had the impact, has been the encouragement in faith that she has to me. 
Um, Catherine Drexel passed away in 1955, March 3rd. Actually, what's interesting, my grandmother would have been six months pregnant with my father at that point. And when she passed away, there were, at that moment in time, over 500 other women who had actually given their lives, dedicated, forsaken uh, any career, uh, family, houses, homes, their own will, to dedicate their lives to doing precisely the same thing that Catherine Drexel had done during the course of her life. What was that vocation? Well, actually, like some of you, she was a teacher. She was a teacher. She had established, in the course of her life, 49 elementary schools, 12 high schools, a university, a couple of study houses, over and across 20 states. Catherine Drexel realized, as, again, uh, many of you, even you who are not teachers, but have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren in your lives, that the poorest of, our, of the poor in our culture are children. As strange as it sounds to put it that way, because they completely and totally rely on others around them to provide them the things that they need and the things that happen to them, whether they're good or bad, have no, they have no bearing. <laughs> um, it's just kind of something that they need. And so the children are the ones that most need our time, our attention, our love. Catherine recognized that, and she wanted to give her life particularly to that, that they might be able to know those things that are good, that are true, that are beautiful, and the God who loves them. There was a little bit more, though, to these schools that Catherine Drexel established. They were all in places that nobody else wanted to go or was able to go. She did much of her work, as you can figure out from when she uh, had died there in 1955, in the first half of the 19th, of the 20th, excuse me, of the 20th century. Um, and at that point, if you'll recall, history had not been so kind to two groups in particular. First being the Native Americans. Helen Hunt Jackson's book, uh, A Century of Dishonor, had been published when Catherine was still a teenager, which chronicles the story that many of you already know, uh, that the Native Americans time and again would make these treaties, they'd be broken and they'd be relocated again and again, and the land that they got relocated to uh, successively was worse, it was hotter, it was drier, it was humid, nothing grew there. Uh, much of the time, all that was going on for many of these tribes is just bare, bare subsistence survival and, and despair, and people would try to go and establish schools out there, but nobody could do it because there was no plumbing, no electricity. Like I said, these places were just, they were really difficult to live. But she was convinced that these were people that were loved by God that they needed to know, especially now and especially mostly, the good news of Christ and of the fact that he dignifies, that he loves them, that he values them, that again, um, to give them the opportunity, um, the practical opportunity through education to seize those opportunities that were still there, to know um, that the church wanted to be present in that place. The second group of people that um, she ended up dedicating a lot of these schools to, again, that history had not been kind up to that point, were people of color. In the lexicon of that day, um, black persons, African Americans, who, again, through the Civil War, which she would have been young right, at that, right during that moment, had been freed through the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, but still faced the Ku Klux Klan, was formed shortly after that, Jim Crow laws, in the South, when her and the women who were a part of this particular ministry established facilities or schools, they would on more than one occasion in the South be burnt to the ground 
or have crosses lit on the property, or in some cases find dynamite on the property with the intent to, quote, blow them all to hell. And during all this time, while she was traveling to these places between these Native American reservations that would be, again, either like negative 20 or 120 degrees without electricity or plumbing in these places where she would have all these hostile conflicts with the communities around them, she had this wonderful journal that she kept. I just want to give you uh, a short little excerpt here. I've read pages and pages uh, like this. She writes in it, again, this is during all those years, yes, my Lord, to you I commend my spirit, my soul with its faculties, my body with its senses, my heart with its affection, all that I have and all that I am. Dispose of me absolutely in everything according to your will. May everything outside you be a matter of indifference to me. Provide only that I accomplish your will and advance your love. Oh Jesus, I love you and I abandon myself to your love for time and eternity. Again, just absolutely amazing. Her journal is, is such an incredible thing. Um, and she's doing this, like I said, during all these years that she's establishing the schools. One of the things that's particularly extraordinary to me or just always is stuck out about Catherine Drexel's life is that um, she actually enters uh, this order when she's 31 years old in 1889. Before, she's en before she enters uh, the order there, um, she was uh, perhaps the wealthiest heiress in the United States at that time. She was due to receive a fortune of hundreds of millions of dollars, at least in dollars of our day. She had lived up to that point, up to 31 years, a life that most of us could only ever dream of. She could get anything that she wanted, anytime she wanted, any way that she wanted it. She ultimately uh, surrenders that life. Instead, of course, she chooses the hardship the deprivation, the humility, and the service of establishing these schools for uh, Native Americans and persons of color. And actually, what she does is she ultimately, as you probably anticipated, use all her wealth to establish, build those facilities, those schools on the reservations in the South that she could. She was famous for wearing the same shoes for so many years that they could no longer be recognized as shoes. She always took the most austere whenever she had to travel in between these places. She only ever ate the most basic foods, and whenever there were people that were being served in a group, she always took the least and the worst part of whatever there was. They would interview um, on these different schools after she had passed away, and um, they would always ask people, did you know that she, she was you know, she had been extremely wealthy in her life, and people would always say, I never would have imagined that she was the one who was the wealthy one because she always did all the dirtiest jobs. She was always the one who was cleaning the toilets and so on. People asked her over the course of her life um, to be able to endow because she had all this wealth. They said, you know, Catherine, go ahead and endow this particular ministry to make sure that it always goes on. You guys know what an endowment is. It's a huge sum of money, and then you take off the interest of it. She refused to ever set up an endowment for it because, she said, if God wants this ministry to continue, God will provide for it. And it would rob me right now, Catherine, of the chance to be able to give to those in need that I know urgently have the needs. And it would rob others in the future of the chance of generosity. And it would fail to set the example, this is really important to her, 
that worldly riches should only ever be used for what's necessary in this life, and so have the power of a witness to a life beyond this one. She leads the kind of life here that I think is a remedy to so many, so many of the social and the cultural woes that we experience in this present moment, of which I'm sure you could name many, whether it's addictions, despair, or loneliness, as you can see that her treasure was not of this earth, but that truly she wanted to store up and be rich towards God and towards neighbor. But maybe one of the most fascinating things to me about her life, and why I guess it's struck me in so many ways, um, is who she was early in life, how she went from being, I mean, was she just born of a different person at least than I am, to be born into the most wealthy kind of lifestyle in the wealthiest sort of world that you could imagine. And then to become, as she ultimately does, and to give her life to empty herself and to serve the least of these. We know a lot about Frances and Emma, her parents. And in many ways, her parents, if you recall too, during the same time frame, uh, the 1860s through the 1890s, for those of you that know this particular tradition, this is when the whole National Camp Meeting for the Promotion of Holiness was going on. The groups that would become the Church of the Nazarene were meeting. Um, And her parents, while they were Catholic, were, in some sense, good holiness folk. Her family and she herself are such wonderful, to me, exemplars of the best of our cultural inheritance as Americans. The willingness to, at times, go against what would have been expected of them as wealthy people, and at the same time to share that zeal, that fervor, that intensity to be renewed in life and day. They just had that ability to be able to marry, again, the best of, I think, what goes on in our culture with faith. We know that her parents went to services as often as they could. We actually have letters that Francis would write to Emma. Again, these are her parents, where Francis would say, God has blessed us immensely in our lives, and it is our duty with what God has given us, one, to be good stewards of it, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, but also to show our gratitude by being as present as we possibly can in worship, and of course for them, especially coming to where the Lord offers himself here. I could get, I mean, just from reading the letters there, the most important thing to them in their lives was the fact, I mean, incomparably, they obviously, like I said, had a lot of riches, but they compared that all as nothing to the riches of being able to receive Christ in this moment here, present. Is it any wonder that Catherine Drexel also inherited that same love of Christ and of the way that he offers himself here from her parents? We know that her father was insistent every day when he came home from work to spend a half hour, he'd just go up to his room alone in prayer. And the girls all knew this. Obviously, um, Francis gave to a lot of large institutions. One of the really remarkable things about Emma, their mother, is that three days a week, they lived in Philadelphia, three days a week, she would open up their home, literally their front door, and anybody in Philadelphia who had a need could come. Now, Emma had somebody. She, there was a woman that she worked with. And if they had a need, this woman, Mary, would go and just verify that the needs were there. There were, you know, the situation was what it was. And then Mary would give them a ticket. And they could come and speak to Emma for as long as the story took in their front parlor and outline, here are all the needs. And Emma would, right then and there, give them what they needed. 
And she had, she'd keep accounts just so that she knew who came, when they came, what they had asked for in case somebody was un, unjudiciously using her time or, or the resources from people that really had needs there. But she kept accounts and they would do this, like I said, every day, three days a week. And the girls grew up just, this was a part of their life. They would eventually help their mother run what she called the Dorcas after Tabitha and Axe, a woman who, who gave these alms. On Sunday evenings, we know that they had uh, all the girls, Liz, Katie, and Louise, uh, would read these stories of former Christians, and then they'd give reports on it all as a family. They would do this together. In some cases, the girls would act out these dramas or plays um, that the girls would do. We know that they had these very simple habits on a daily basis of trying to instill a certain amount of self-renunciation, a certain amount of self-denial, and things like abstaining from certain foods on certain days in memory always that we renounce ourselves so that we can learn how to be obedient to God even when it's difficult and remember always that we're dependent on God. They, uh, they had this summer home, again, not surprising for such a wealthy family, that they would go to, especially as the girls were getting older, and they wanted to build an addition onto their house but rather than building whatever the 19th century equivalent would have been of like an infinity pool or a racquetball court, uh, they built a chapel just so that they could have the privilege of being able more often to, uh, to, to get together and worship. And there would be a local minister who would come and he'd do the services there. His name was James O'Connor. And through their friendship with uh, James O'Connor there, he saw uh, immediately, especially that Katie had been uh, blessed in faith. And so they, they, he was kind of a spiritual mentor to her. Um, and we have a number of, of letters that they exchanged over the course of the years. Um, and what you find in Katie as she gets to her early teenage years um, is the product of, again, so much of what she had already been experiencing with her parents. And there is this desire in her in a very practical way to try to live into um, the faith that she has inherited, to try to learn what it means to love Jesus more and to try to learn maybe a little bit more how to empty herself of her will. And so she writes things in her journal. Again, she's 13 or 14. I want to devote five to eight minutes in the morning to devotions in the prayer book. During the day when it's possible, when the clock strikes, I want to offer up all my actions to God. She writes about trying to make a meditation. It was very popular then, as I'm sure some of you had. I think... Um, Calling Jesus may be a popular devotional. Then in that day, it was one called Spiritual Conferences. And she talks about reading that for 10 to 15 minutes. She talks about examining her conscience thoroughly every day to see if she's doing the things that she wants to do. Taking the advice of those who have been entrusted with her spiritual care. And I love this. And she's writing again about that idea of self-denial, self-renunciation to follow God. She says, do not think of self, but of God in all things. To renounce self. By frequent offerings, hastily stopping the least vain thought or thought of self. And then she writes below that, no cake for 1882. No preserves until June 1882. No grapes, no honey until July 1st. She can all seem silly until you consider the woman that she ultimately becomes over the course of her life. And you see that these are all little steps along the way. She'd often write things in her journals like, another year has come round and I will renew my resolutions again, for I am but little better than impurity. Pride and vanity is just the same or very little better or worse. 
In impatience with God's help, I'm a little better, although I have not had the same occasion for sinning against it. I guess if she had had the same occasion for temptation, she wonders. She notes a little later down the year in, in that same journal, I'm a little better now, but like a vain wretch, I am proud of it. Should I not thank Jesus for helping me? Over the course of these years, she would go back and forth with James O'Connor, her spiritual mentor, and she'd always, as she was talking back and forth, she would be honest about, this is what, you know, again, this is what I'd like to be praying. These are the ways that I'm trying to renounce myself, follow Christ more. And she'd always give, like, the most extreme. She was, her sisters would call her scrupulous, which was their way of saying, you're, you're trying way too hard. Uh, and James O'Connor would often say, okay, you need to, you need to cool down a little bit. She'd, she'd give these really extreme kinds of devotions and um, abstentions or abstaining from things, and he'd always try to call her back. Um, and then after he would try to help her chill out, she's like, no, I'm going to do it anyways because I'm going to prove to you I can do it. And then we'd, you'd find in the next letter, she'd, she'd be like, wait, 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 that's actually a little bit too intense. <laughs> I need, I need to come back. Can I get an exception here, here, and here? Um, and, and you just, you get the sense of both her, uh, should I say, active, uh, fierce, uh, fiery spirit within all this, her intensity, but, but also um, the way that she was really, um, she always trusted James O'Connor just again as she had been listening and obedient to her parents. I love her biographer ultimately says that she wasn't born a saint. She wasn't born holy. She wasn't in the parlance that we would oftentimes use, born entirely sanctified. It was this calm, patient product of a lifelong journey, one that you can hear from her journal that she actually estimated that she failed miserably in. But by this sort of constant, this diligent, this striving that she has, being ignited, impassioned by the love of Christ that she inherited again from her parents, from that love of um, just being wherever Christ himself was. We get to see it in her, and ultimately, again, in the woman that she becomes in establishing these schools. You know, she inspires, she encourages me, not because I ever think I will be uh, like or be just become uh, the, the sort of person that Catherine Drexel was. And I don't think necessarily that God expects me to be that person. But what I never want to lose sight of and why I think that she's for me is just because I'm not going to be her, it can be so easy to write off all those little things that you see in her life that she's doing along the way. And the way not only that it would impact me, but also as you see from Francis and Emma and even I haven't even told you stories about them or about her grandparents and the way that that trickles through. Um, we've been doing these last couple weeks, which is why part of this is so fascinating. We'll be doing it actually right after the service, uh, a little seminar on raising kids in the faith, um, which is just precisely trying to be the people that we are and knowing that every little thing matters along the way. When I think of Catherine Drexel, I think of there's an old proverb that says the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And I would encourage you all, especially here uh, as we're going into this season uh, of being in anticipation of Christmas, uh, we call Advent, we'll begin November 28th, uh, just maybe to make some sort of small commitment there uh, in the same way that Katie does over the course of her life, whether that's um, 
to, to find a way to give to others who are in need, whether that's to find a way to just simply deny yourself something that otherwise you might want and reminder again, uh, following God's way, or um, just finding a way to, to be more devoted here and present in worship in the life of the church. One last thing that was really interesting to me about her life. Um, the order that she was a part of was considered an active order. There's kind of two major ways that orders fall. You're either an active order. When I was down in San Diego, uh, the Sisters of Mercy were one of them. We had Mercy Hospital. There were still a few sisters or the order that she was with for your teaching. And then there's what's called a contemplative order, which is mostly dedicated to, to prayer. Um, Catherine Drexel uh, wanted her, <laughs> she wanted all, she wanted it all. Um, she demanded that her order do this very unusual thing. They were going to have an active ministry um, teaching in these particular places, but she demanded that everyone who was a part of this, everyone who was a part of this particular thing, on a daily basis, on a daily basis, be able to come to the table. Because what she said is, you could not give what you had not received. And she wanted them daily to be communing with the grace, the life, the love of Christ that he gives and he offers to us. Her story in some ways, and again, it's so beautiful, but it really centers around the miracle of what goes on here in this space, especially as Christ himself bids us that we come to the table and receive his life. This certainly was the most important thing that you get in Francis and Emma's life and that you hear from her, especially in her later years. Catherine empties herself so that through all that she does in giving up all of her wealth and following those rules and uh, trying to live a life that would be pleasing to Christ so that she might be filled with the life and love of Christ. So that she could gain an eternal treasure that would outweigh any silver or gold of this world. Maybe my prayer this morning is that you come precisely to this table in that same spirit of hope. Meditate on Christ's gift of love in the same way that she does, desiring to abandon herself to all eternity, to God's love, simply that she would do his will. Be emptied in the same way of what she, as she was of what this world has or offers that's often so hollow, so that you might be filled more with God and share him with everybody around you. For as she shows, or at least shows me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful this morning for the words of the gospel for resonating that we do not need to be anxious about this life, to get caught up in so many little things about what we're eating, about what we're wearing, about what we're going to be doing tomorrow, but simply to dedicate our lives to doing the one thing that truly matters, to being able to follow, to obey you, and to work out all those little steps along the way, Lord, that allow us to hear you better and more clearly and obey you more quickly and love you more fervently and intently. Would you be able to continue to reveal us, allow us to receive the graces that you give in your church and amongst your people, and especially here at this table. Allow us to humbly, reverently, and obediently approach and receive the gift which only you can give, which you promised to them that love you. Pray this in your son's name.